do this. Let's talk about talk. Hey there, I'm Dr. Andrea Wojnicki. You can call me Andrea. Thanks for listening to Talk About Talk. This is where we come to learn and talk about our communication skills. Because when we communicate effectively, we can be a better manager, colleague, parent, partner, and friend. Today, we're talking youth mental health. Yes, mental health. Another taboo topic. But you may have noticed that mental health is being talked about more and more these days, which is great news, isn't it? This increased awareness and focus on mental health can be partly attributed to our guest expert for this podcast episode, Nicole German. A few years ago, Nicole lost her beautiful teenage daughter, Madeline, fondly called Maddie, who struggled with anxiety and depression. Since then, Nicole started the Maddie Project to support you struggling with depression and other mental health concerns. So, the Maddie Project is all about raising awareness, improving access to mental health care, and raising money to support youth mental health facilities, such as Maddie's Healing Garden at North York General Hospital here in Toronto. The Maddie Project has had a significant and positive influence in all of these areas. We are so fortunate, and I am so grateful that we have Nicole here to share her family's story and her thoughts and advice on youth mental health. In this podcast episode, you will learn a lot, I promise. Whether you're a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle, a coach, a teacher, however you interact with young people, the lessons coming out of this episode can have a significant impact and possibly even save a life. As Nicole and her sons, Zachary and Sawyer, like to say, big things and little things, everything can help. Whether you're doing big things like taking time out of your busy workday to do a podcast interview or small things like walking down the hall with someone, you can make a big impact. So I can imagine at this point that you're probably really eager to hear what Nicole has to say and less from me. So let me tell you how this episode is going to go. First, I will formally introduce Nicole German to you so you have a better idea of her background, and then we'll get right into the interview. After the interview, I'll briefly highlight five of the main insights we learned from the interview. And I can tell you that this conversation with Nicole certainly affected my perspective on conversations I'm having with my own kids and with others. As always, you can reference everything in the show notes on the Talk About Talk website. For this interview in particular, though, I really hope you'll check out the show notes because of the helpful references that are listed, including links to the Maddie Project website, ways you can help, youth mental health resources, and you'll also see a lot of the color purple, which was Maddie's favorite color. Okay, now let me formally introduce Nicole German. Nicole is a proud mom, a global tech marketer, a business strategy executive, and also the leading force behind the Maddie Project, a community effort in support of youth struggling with depression and other mental health-related concerns. Nicole started the Maddie Project in memory of her daughter, Madeline. To date, the Maddie Project has engaged millions of people in active conversations around youth mental health, and it's raised almost $2 million towards the development of Maddie's Healing Garden and the support of other child and adolescents' mental health services, including Skylark Youth and Families and Outward Bound. Nicole has been recognized with the Community and Charitable Giving Award by BMO Celebrating Women and as a one of 10 women of North York by the North York General Hospital Foundation. In addition to all this work she does with the Maddie Project, Nicole is also the global head of digital marketing and growth for Scotiabank. She serves as the vice chair of the North York General Hospital Foundation, and she acts in an advisory capacity to many tech startups around the world. In her free time, you can find Nicole between her homes in Toronto, New York, and in Belgium, traveling and being a mom to her sons, Zach and Sawyer. Thank you so much, Nicole, for taking the time and sharing your story with us today. Great. Thanks for having me. 
So I thought it would be nice if you could start by telling us a bit about Maddie. Sure. So I'm the mom of three kids and Madeline, who we also call Maddie, was uh, my oldest daughter. And so she was one of the easiest babies you could ever imagine, actually. She was very easygoing. And then when she had two younger brothers, she really became the nurturer. So typical big sister looking out for her two younger brothers. And then as she progressed through life, I would say was definitely on the spectrum of high performance, um, whether it was academically or through sports, very social, very well liked. And as she approached adolescence uh, and puberty, some things started to really change for her. And I think as first-time parents, we weren't really sure whether this was just things uh, that were puberty perspective or there was really more to it. As you know, she progressed into middle school and high school. Uh, she started to struggle. She started to struggle with you know not being able to get her homework done, or not wanting to go to sports to compete. Um, sometimes not going out with friends. Um, and the reality was that we thought it was just a phase. But in fact, uh, what we learned over time was she had anxiety and, and pretty severe anxiety. And so the thing with anxiety is that um, it's really hard to focus when you have anxiety and when. You you can't focus, it's hard to do homework. And then when you don't do homework, you don't do well in school, which makes you feel terrible. And it becomes really this vicious circle. And so in essence, that was really the beginning of our journey uh, for Madeline um, and her struggling with anxiety and, and, and in essence, depression. Can you tell us a little bit about the Maddie Project? Sure. Madeline struggled um, with uh, depression for a number of years and and got uh, more challenging over time. And it really came to the point where she she passed away from depression. So she took her own life. And at that moment, you know, when we had to communicate to people that she had died and and why she had died, um, it was like these floodgates opened up. There were so many families, actually, you know, from grandparents to parents to teachers and coaches and even youth themselves that came forward and told their story that either they had a sibling or a child or a parent that either they had lost to suicide and depression but never spoken about it or that they were, in fact, struggling. And so what became very apparent was that it was sort of this hidden disease that nobody really wanted to talk about. Would you say taboo? Definitely taboo. And I think there was a there was a shame. And so when Madeline was sick, she was in hospital and she really said, you know, mommy, like, don't tell anybody why I'm here. And so we we really were living this two lives where, you know, at the end of work every day, we were rushing to the hospital to be with her, but nobody knew, you know, outside of very close family and, and a few friends. You know, you kind of equate it to say, you know, if my child had, you know, cancer and was in the hospital for cancer, there would be no question that we would talk about that. But because she was there, because she had attempted suicide, it was taboo to speak about and and fear that she would be judged. Right. So do you feel like that is changing a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, I I think it's a spectrum. If we kind of think back to kind of the one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of perspective, we've made huge strides. I would say that The youth now that I see are speaking more openly about mental health, which I think is great. I think when it comes to, you know, youth and their parents, if you've kind of lived it, people are more open, but there's still a a real hesitancy or sort of a judgment on, you know, how to even respond to that, right? Because it's, 
complex and it's also hard to relate to it as my youngest son would would say it's really an, an invisible disease and you don't really know when it's going to show up right invisible disease that's uh that's amazing i did a podcast episode with a grief counselor a couple of months ago and she was just talking about how even death itself is taboo so it's almost as if there is a second layer then right because you've experienced a death yeah. of a very close family member. Yeah. And it was through suicide. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I mean I I find, you know, when Madeline was struggling it was it was very hard for me to relate and understand because I very much grew up in the, you know, if you get up and have a shower and wash your face, you'll feel better. But the reality was that depression isn't like that. Like when you say you can't get out of bed, it's truly because you can't get out of bed. And now having lived and you know a tremendous tragedy and experience uh, grief uh, it's very relatable the the notion of saying i don't have the energy to get out of bed and it's incredibly frustrating i mean there were moments and there still are i mean it's it's a number of years later where i don't have the energy to drive my boys to sports because i just I physically don't. And, you know, calling in that favor without kind of explaining why, it's challenging. And some people think, you know, sometimes you feel, oh, I'm not being a great parent. But, but and again, grief has some of those symptoms that are similar to things like depression and in that way, right? But you... you even PTSD. In, even PTSD, exactly, yeah. right? And so I think, you know, having that self-awareness of saying, it's okay, it's okay that today's, you know, a day that you need to just be okay to yourself and allow others to help you. And part of that is what you're doing here today, being on this podcast and hopefully encouraging other people to have open conversations, whether they themselves are experiencing, you know, the mental health issue or... We talk about mental health concerns, right? And I think we all have mental health. It's it's really a spectrum. You have your up and days down. And I even used to say to, to Madeline is that, you know, everybody has these challenges and some people have have different levels of resilience at different moments in their life. And so the complexity of, you know, whether it's it's everything from nutrition to biology to heredity to social to just Mm -hmm. environments, right? And so I think we all have good days and bad days. And so you can equate it to that, right? And it is very much a spectrum. So does it help to equate it to our physical health? I mean, it sounds as if what you're describing are symptoms of someone who is physically exhausted or may have the flu, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, everything just for clarity is always my own perspective because yep. I'm not a, a professional. I believe that mental health is like nutrition. Like we should wake up and think about it every day, right? You know, and where are we on our scale? And so there are physical sy- symptoms, but sometimes there aren't, right? Sometimes it's literally something might trigger you to react in some way. We have to really you know, have eyes wide open. And I'll give an example of of Madeline in particular. When she was 11, she had these severe stomach aches. Everything else was, she was functioning perfectly well, doing well in school, sports, you know, everything. And I took it to every doctor under the sun. Mm. And we had all of these tests, not a single one said anxiety because everything else in her life seemed perfectly a-okay. And I know now in hindsight, for sure, that was anxiety. And it went away over time. And so, you know, you know, she got, she got better with her, her stomach aches, but again, it it was just 
like not kind of having the eyes wide open to sort of say, maybe there is more to this and maybe it is something like anxiety or, I mean, she was, even when she was young, was a perfectionist. She did, she wouldn't do her printing at Montessori because she wanted it to be perfect. And so if she couldn't do it perfectly, she didn't want to do it at all. Right. So those, again, like when you kind of look, you know, it's always easier to look in hindsight, of course, but mm-hmm. I think those are the things that um, for all of us and, and any adults that are exposed to kids are just like, you know, the kids that go are starting to go off the rails or like acting differently than when they were children. Like those are the kids that we actually need to empathize and like give an olive branch to rather than label them to say like, oh, that's the bad one. Like, I don't want you hanging out with, you know, with that child anymore because they're a bit of a troublemaker. But actually, you know what? They're not intentionally bad, right? There's more to their story. And There's so I always tell the parents, say, that's when you need to invite them over, you know, for the family dinner and sometimes getting out of their own family space to kind of make sure that they're, yeah, we don't, you know, lose them, um, you know, into a different path. So. so as parents and caregivers and teachers, we're always constantly monitoring children for their physical health ailments, right? Yeah. And it's like this mental health spectrum needs to be assessed and we need to be aware of it. It's just awareness, right? Absolutely. It's awareness and it's empathy, right? It's it's realizing that the kids are under a lot of pressure to perform these days and to really race through life. And the reality is, is that there's no hurry and there's no rush, but also to kind of coach them through um, these types of scenarios. And so if they don't do well on a test, let's sit down and help coach them through that, right? So the more that we can kind of teach them at a young age to kind of get through kind of those challenging times, but also just those basic resilience or, you know, mindfulness or, you know, when I'm feeling stressed, how do I breathe or how do I think or how do I take a moment to help really consciously give them those life skills to kind of take them on, Mm -hmm. um, you know, throughout the course of their life. It's like resilience training, but getting really down to physically and mentally what's going on. Exactly. Do you have advice for parents and maybe someone's listening to this and they're thinking, oh my gosh, my son or my daughter sounds like that. And maybe it's been in the back of their mind and maybe because it still is to some extent a taboo in our culture, they haven't done anything about it. Whereas if it was a physical ailment, they would have called their medical doctor. Can you recommend what they should do? Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately, at least in Canada um, and lots of countries around the world, it's very hard to get access to care, uh, whether it's paid or not paid or, or through healthcare. It's a challenge because there's such a great demand. So number one is that as a parent, you need to advocate for your child's health care, you know, first and foremost. So don't uh, wait. As soon as you start to see signs, speak openly with the child to let them know that if something's not feeling right, uh, that's okay. They don't need to know why that just that they need to kind of check in to explain that and then bring in that community or that circle of care. Yeah. It's really for kids to articulate if they're feeling off, they don't have to know the answer why, right. Or if they're feeling tired or they don't feel like going out with their friends or they can't focus, you know, really the first step is allowing those kids to put their, you know, encouraging those kids to put their hand up for, for help. Right. Um, and whether that's with a parent or an adult or sort of someone trusted, but in often cases, there may not be a solution out of the gates, but just to know that someone's there for you is incredibly important, especially, you know, at early stages. 
So in addition to encouraging kids to put their hand up, as you said, to say something's wrong, even if they don't know why, what else can parents do in terms of helping their children? So the first start, you know, is, you know, going to your family doctor, letting them know, see how they can help to triage and really do some assessment. And then the next part of that is really looking within your community in terms of what access to care there is. And so, so in some cases there are walking clinics or resourcing at school. So really look within the community of care to see what's available and continue to pursue, you know, even if there are wait lists, but to continue to kind of, of course, put yourself on the wait list, but keep calling back, right? Especially if it's a more severe scenario. Mm-hmm. In the case of acuteness, or if you're worried about suicide ideation or what have you, don't take it lightly. Definitely, you know, go to your local hospital. I think that's something where, you know, even if kids are talking about that, it's it's not something that we should take lightly. And then there's a number of access to triage centers, like, you know, Kids Help Phone can help. There's the navigation program that can really sort of say, I'm in this situation now, you know, based on what you're hearing, you know, what, what are those best solutions, right? So really be looking for access to care that way. And being a proactive advocate. Yeah. Absolutely proactive. And so to the degree that you can, you know, making sure that their teachers, guidance counselors, even coaches and close friends of parents uh, are aware that, you know, they're struggling, right? Because I think the greater that community of care is, uh, the more supportive they will be of the child. Whether it's your own kid or someone else's, I love that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think for the kids too, you know, we talk a lot about like never leaving anybody behind Mm. and even, and always just having that notion of, you know, it's sort of basic principles, but like treat, you know, everyone the way that you would be wanted to be treated because you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. And so someone's kind of off on their own or seems to be struggling is you don't have to be best friends with them, but just, Hmm. you know, saying hello or being there or, you know, walking down the hall with them, I think is really encouraging as well. You know, Nicole, honestly, when I pick my kids up from school today, I'm going to be talking to them differently because they always tell me stories about quote unquote bad kids. Yeah. Yeah. And instead of saying, oh man, that's just what, what is that kid thinking? It'll be, what do you think's going on? Exactly. And I think, I mean, I think again, when you lose someone or you've been close to dealing with someone struggling with, you know, pretty severe mental health challenges, it changes your perspective completely. Um, for me, it's it still feels very irrational and, and how you can lose um, someone that way, but it's it's an illness, right? And so it's not like they intended or they're, they're mal-willed. And so typically when you see someone in public environments, you know, whether they're on the street or whatever, like each of those individuals have a story, right? So even if it's a young child and they're being a quote unquote bad kid, you know, maybe there's more to it, right? I think, mm. um, I think that's, you know, the way that that we should look, especially for young people, because, you know, they're, they're still little and, and... They're still learning. Yeah, exactly. Learning to deal with the world and also with themselves. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So when I was preparing for this interview, I read something that you wrote that's online and you said doing little things and doing big things to help. Can you describe what that means? When the Maddie Project was sort of formed and, um, you know, we had great community engagement, we worked together with Northrop General Hospital uh, to support um, Maddie's Healing Garden. So we pledged to raise a million dollars, which for me, well, it was a legacy for my daughter, was a big monkey on my back to have to <laughs> raise a, a million a dollars, a um, not being a fundraiser. And so it was momentous. And, you know, we had incredible support of, of making that happen. And, and it's been fully funded and open now, which is amazing. But what I realized is that anything that we can do is goodness, right? And so whether it's $20 at a bake sale 
or just wearing a t-shirt with the Maddie Project or Shine Bright on the back and people say, oh, you know, what is that? And saying, oh, it's, you know, for youth mental health. Just having that conversation is so critical. And my my sons are engaged in, in their school communities and speaking. And we really sort of say, if, if you touch one kid in that audience and they go home and tell mom or dad or, or their trusted adult that they're struggling, like, you've saved a life potentially, right? Like you've made a huge impact. So just, as we say, just by sparking conversations, we're making change. Wow, that is incredibly inspiring. Is there anything else you want to say to parents in particular, again, perhaps coaches or teachers about mistakes from your perspective that you see them commonly making or things that you wish they knew? I think the biggest thing there is empathy, right? I think to the point around, you know, we all have rules and regulations, but when you see a kid that particularly you've known in the past is acting differently, just that notion of eyes wide open is is not to judge based on their behavior at that moment, but just know who they are or that, you know, we as humans are all good people. So I think particularly these kids, they're up against such different environments than, you know, 20 years ago, the pressures that they live. And and so I think that would be one point. But most importantly, is to have an open dialogue about mental health at the dinner table, you know, with friends, you know, the kids' friends around the table, just just making an open conversation. Mm -hmm. So people aren't afraid to talk about or aren't ashamed of, of speaking about, you know, not feeling off or having to get extra help from a therapist or, you know, whatever, or needing to take some some days off off school. I think mm. it's really important that we can just be, speak openly and, and not to judge. That's great advice. I want to change gears here a little bit and ask you about the role of social media in adolescent mental health. So we've all heard horror stories about kids that have been bullied online and then they've become anxious or depressed or both. And I wondered if you had any perspective on that to share. Yeah, for sure. My professional life surrounds around social media and and social uh, media marketing. And so, you know, the platforms exist. I think there's a lot of good, there's a lot of opportunity around creating connections amongst people, but it's really exposed a challenge for our kids and a distortion to reality, not just for children, actually for everyone. And and in fact, sort of addictions, right? And um, so I think the idea of, again, having open conversations, around like what reality is uh, and what isn't and and then the notion of watching your kids for what they can handle and and what they can't right because that idea of you know posting the perfect picture or you know who engaged with it and who didn't it's not even bullying but can be perceived by a, a young person as feeling like I didn't you know, get as many likes or the like count thing is huge. Yeah. Even if there are comments made, it's not the same as a conversation. And, you know, I used to say with Madeline is that when you interact with a person face to face, they would never engage with you in the way that they did online. And so I think it's just, I mean, every family's different. They chose to how to, how to manage uh, and monitor social media for, for their kids and their families. Mm -hmm. I think the idea is just, again, to be aware of how much time they're being spent and how it's actually impacting them and their behavior, right? Um, Because I don't know that it's going to go away. And so we just need to make sure that we equip our kids with the right tools on how to engage and how to, you know, live with that in their lives. I think it's a very fair point about it being a personal decision about how you, how much you monitor, you know, a couple of times I've, I've sat down with my kids to go through their phones with them. And actually based on this conversation now, I will try to do that 
more, more frequently, but in a different way. Like we would look at people's posts and say, why do you think they did that? Right. And do you think there's a filter on there? And what do you think their goal was? Was it to get likes or was it to shame someone else? Or, you know, and I I love your point about they would never say it to your face, but they'll type it there. Exactly. Yeah. I've read two pieces of research recently, like within the last two months, I would say, that are interesting in this context. One said that for teenagers, there's a simple correlation between hours spent on social media and depression, full stop. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, the statistics are there for sure. And I think not just for kids, right? Even for adults, right? We're all subject to using that as a primary form of receiving content, right? So it's hard to kind of step away and walk away. The idea, you know, both my boys go off to wilderness camp in the summer and the idea of not having any device around so that they actually learn to communicate and articulate. Imagine. Yeah. Like, like for multiple days over a month on end is, is really, actually, it's really important. It's fundamental, right? I think again, another point to be eyes wide open is really understand, understand the statistics. I, I mean, even after we lost Madeline, I was astounded by the statistics. So, you know, one in five kids will struggle. Only 25% will get access to care for mental health care and suicide in youth as a second leading cause of death. And so those statistics are real, right? And they're horrifying, frankly. And I'm a huge believer that if we don't help these kids today, um, we're not gonna have a workforce in the future, right? Mm. Or we're not, you know, because I, I mean, these are our future kids, you know, are the, are the future workforce. And I think we, you know, whether it's the government, corporate Canada, and, you know, we in the communities, we have to help these kids make sure that they have the tools and the monitoring, um, you know, to make sure that their me- mental health is stable uh, right. for the long term. Right. And I just wanted to add the other research that I read said that children's anxiety goes up when they have their phone in their room when they're trying to sleep. And and I felt like, well, again, this is not just kids, it's yeah. adults too. If yeah. you have your phone outside of your room, you're not thinking about all the texts or whatever, the comments that you're missing from your friends online, you're just sleeping. But yeah, if exactly. your phone's beside you when yeah. you're in bed, you're freaking out. My daughter, when I sent her to bed the other night, she said, mom, if you could see my phone right now, my friends are all chatting. And I'm like, well, maybe three of <laughs> the 10 are, <laughs> yeah. but they're exhausted. And yeah. frankly, I, you need to sleep. So, yeah. Well, and I think while the utility of a phone is amazing because it houses, and frankly, you know, everything for us, you can do grocery shopping, you can interact with people across the world. And so often we have it by our bedside, right? Whether it's for your alarm or, um, you know, make sure that the older teenagers get home on time and things like that. It's a challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I think Ariana Huffington has done, done some great research about, you know, how do you shut down? down in the evening, right. again, more around adults, but I think the same practice, you know, lies with the, with our young people too, right? Is really what is healthy behavior? I think it used to be in our day, not watching television, right? right exactly. <laughs> not going to falling asleep with a TV on in your room or whatever that is. So I think, again, it's the same kind of behavior is, yep. you know, really forcing yourself to decompress without that so that we can get a healthy sleep and um, kind of clear the mind of, mm-hmm. of any types of anxiety. You know, what helps me a lot is to remind myself that our jobs when we were teenagers was to push boundaries against our parents. And it's the same thing. Now our kids are pushing it. It's their job to 
seek access to their phone or to try to stay up later. And it's our job to set boundaries that are healthy for them, right? Mentally and physically. Absolutely, right? I find it's challenging. I know in our family, we had discussions of what is age appropriate to get a phone. Uh, Once we got to the third child, um, (laughs) him having a phone gave us a little bit more independence because we knew that he could not only interact with us, but also with his siblings if, you know, they were going somewhere together or what have you. And so Also take an Uber. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Take an Uber, right? So um, again, back to you can do anything from your phone. But yeah, the notion of boundaries is really important. Hmm. But but, but again, I think it comes back to like the articulation of of why. It's not just like Mm. you can't have your phone after 10 o'clock or whatever that time is. It's like really let's talk about it, right? Like, why does this make sense? Or, you know, and, and maybe on a Friday night, it's okay, or whatever that is, because that, you know, they can sleep in, or I'm not sure, like, again, but just you have to, each each person and each kid is so different. Mm. And, and so. I feel like the question of why is a bit of a meta theme here with this discussion, right? You said earlier, that we should be encouraging our children to come to us when they have issues or challenges, even if they don't know why. And then we talked about also when someone's misbehaving, you shouldn't just accuse them of being bad. You should question why, why might they be acting that way, right? Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a really great point, right? And we always jump to the conclusion versus really looking at what are the symptoms? You know, is there a rationale? What's going on? I mean, even for teachers, right? I think, again, schools have to have their rules and the regulations, but not every kid has a diagnosis of anxiety. And uh, I mean, I have a great little story about Madeline is in grade nine that she started a new school. The policy was that if you didn't show up for a test or an assignment, you got zero. And so she had a, a classroom presentation of which she went to the bathroom because she was having an anxiety attack. So she didn't show up for the presentation. And so I went in to the teacher the next day, not not asking for her to, I was really gonna, I was really asking her to say, can you bring her in on a one-to-one, let her do the presentation and tell her what she would have gotten. I wasn't asking her to, to not give her a zero. And she said, no, she didn't show up. She gets a zero. And I said, I understand that, but I'm asking you to kind of you know, throw her a bone. And I said, I said, she was in the bathroom with an anxiety. She had an anxiety attack. And she said, well, she didn't, she didn't tell anybody. And I said, well, it's she was, an anxiety she, attack. She was right? horrified to let yeah. anyone know. And she said, well, she doesn't have a diagnosis for anxiety. And I said, and I, I didn't actually say this because I didn't want to drag her into my life. But I was like, that's because I've been wait on a wait list to see a psychiatrist for six months. So I, you know, like I, it, again, it was that vicious notion of vicious circle mm-hmm. again. And just the idea of the empathy to say, empathy, right. I had a kid who's struggling and she's not a bad kid. She had an anxiety attack. Why don't we bring her in and just show her that she's capable of doing a great presentation or coaching her through it versus these are the rules, the rules are zero, blah, blah, blah. And it was very, it was black or white. And I think, again, um, and as a parent, I mean, I was sitting there emotionally, you know, trying to not ask for a bending of the rules for my child but having a bit level of empathy. And so kind of- So the next time she wouldn't have that anxiety attack because she'd know that she could do it. Exactly. But even just knowing like, I'm, yeah, I'm capable Mm. of doing it. Right. And again, it's, it's just the the challenge of like, there's a lot more to that story than her just not showing up to do her presentation. Mm. Right. And so um, I think, you know, we can all, we can all work, work better on that. Um, Give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think so. Is there anything else you want to add, especially I think in terms of parents talking to kids? Yeah, I mean, I think our mission is really to help raise awareness around youth mental health to reduce the stigma, first and foremost. And the second is about creating uninhibited access to care, right, is really kind of breaking down the barriers so that families and their kids can get 
their you know foot in the doorstep. And so I think coming back to what can all of us do is just be opening the conversation about mental health. When you see somebody acting differently or being off, it's just to ask, you know, how are they doing? Is everything okay? Right. And to let them know that, you know, you're there for them. You don't have to be a solutioner, but just to know that you've got uh, a support system, I think is so Mm. important. Mm. That is almost identical to what I heard from the grief counselor in terms of how to to speak, how to support your friend who's in mourning or who's grieving is you don't have to provide solutions. You don't have to provide answers. You just need to know that you're there for them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is a bit of a rude transition, yeah, but now okay. let's move on to the five rapid fire yeah. questions. I hope you can have fun with these. Yeah. Okay. The first question is, what are your pet peeves? Leaving all the cupboard doors open, right? You walk in the kitchen and all the cupboard doors are open. Um, I think I would go with like the front hall clutter. I can handle it if it's out of sight, out of mind from that perspective. And I think committing to your word, right? So when people sort of say, well, you know, I'm going to get together on Friday and then like never delivering on it, keep rescheduling, rescheduling. So. Okay. Second question. What type of learner are you? Visual, auditory, kinesthetic, or maybe some other kind of learner? Definitely visual. So Mm. I'm a a visual, I would say experiential learner. I absorb content and information or just like, especially culturally when you're traveling somewhere, just like sitting in a space and just really taking it all in. I think for me, I'm very much a visual learner. And how does that affect your communication? It's interesting because I do a lot of virtual work. So I definitely prefer things like video conference and leveraging that as a form of, you know, virtual meetings and online, but more interactive. So work in progress. So rather than waiting for kind of a final result is really having iterative work um, and collaboration that way. Next question, introvert or extrovert? I was born an introvert, but I've been coached to be an extrovert in essence, I would say. I remember as a child being incredibly shy, you know, standing almost behind my mother, you know, at family parties and, you know, being very, very shy. I think over time, just through work, cultural experiences have have kind of, I've pushed myself to be more extroverted. Well, I've seen you on stage behind a podium talking about the Maddie Project and you are phenomenal. So yeah. Yeah, well, when, it's, when, it's, when it's something you're incredibly passionate about, it, um, it comes a lot easier, that's for sure. I'll say when you have to stand in front of really anybody to talk about something that is incredibly challenging, it takes a ton of courage and a ton of energy and vulnerability, right? And so I think that has definitely taught me a lot about, um, you know, who I am, but also understanding that when you have big presentations, particularly around the Maddie Project, that you give yourself some some downtime, you know, after mm. the fact, because mm. uh, I've spoken with other parents that have are strong advocates for youth mental health that have lost their kids, and the level of exhaustion kind of when you come through it is uh, amazing. I can't so, even yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah, that would be exhausting. Okay. Communication preference for personal conversations. Yeah. So for me, in person is always the best, of course. Otherwise, it's FaceTime. So um, I have... Uh, so you use FaceTime a lot? A lot. I, I travel a fair amount. And so I'm not always uh, together. And, and it's interesting because even my youngest son won't text or call. He'll just FaceTime me. So it doesn't matter the time of day or what have you. It's just something that is more of his thing versus... Um, and so it definitely... Um, Maybe say. he's like you and he's visual as well, right? Maybe. Yeah, it could be. It huh. could be that. It could be that. So. Okay, last question. Is there a podcast or a blog or an email newsletter that you find yourself recommending the most? 
So this one, I would say no. I'm a, I would, I would call myself a content junkie. So I love podcasts, but I, I really focus on the topics. Um, and so I have a kind of a broad range. But I actually love, and I find myself spending a lot of time listening to podcasts about people talking about their life stories. Mm, um, so autobiographies, autobiographies, or just famous people or business leaders that have kind of that are sharing their journeys. Uh, and it's amazing to really see the correlations of people share very challenging times in their lives, but they continue to progress and move forward. And so there's no one podcast per se, but it, right now podcasts are my medium of, of content. I, I used to run listening to music and now I actually run listening to podcasts. So how can listeners connect with you if they want to ask you about uh, the Maddie Project or anything else? Yeah, so we're almost on every channel online. So things like Facebook, Instagram, not surprising, um, Twitter. Yeah, and so that's the best way. We're small and nimble, so we you know really try to respond. We're you know again really community based. We're trying to connect people with either resources or other parents that are going through similar situations. But living true to our mission is that we're just there to be of whatever support and offer kind of a, a listening ear um, for those that might be struggling. That's great. Thank you so, so much, Nicole, for sharing your story and your insights. I really appreciate it. And I know a lot of people do as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for shining a light on youth mental health. This has been great. It's great. Yeah. Thank thanks. You. Isn't Nicole just so inspiring? It probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I cannot imagine going through what Nicole has experienced. And to watch her advocacy now for youth mental health through the Maddie Project is nothing less than remarkable. Nicole, you're a hero. And I thank you so much for sharing your story and your insights. I learned a lot from Nicole in this conversation. Let me now summarize five of those things for us. The first thing is that mental health concerns are common. Nicole shared some statistics, including that one in five kids or 20% of youth will struggle, but only 25% will get access to mental health care. And suicide in youth is the second leading cause of death. So, as adults, in whatever capacity, parents, extended family, friends, coaches, teachers, we need to step up. The second point is to highlight what Nicole identified as the main things we can do. Awareness, empathy, and advocacy. After listening to this podcast, I hope that our awareness has increased. We need to watch for signals in our children, like isolation, or an obsession with social media, or dropping grades, or maybe a loss of interest in things that they used to enjoy. If we see these things, we need to step in to help. And that help means two things, being empathetic and advocating for the child, be it at school or through the mental health system. Don't wait, just get on it. The third point is the question of why. Nicole said that children should be able to voice mental health concerns without knowing why they're happening. That really resonated with me. When one of my kids tells me they have a sore throat, I don't immediately ask, why? They know they can come and tell me about their physical ailments without knowing why they feel that way. The same should go if they're feeling anxious or depressed. So make sure that the kids around you know that they can tell you how they're feeling without explaining why. As Nicole says, encourage the kids to put their hands up for help. And the other part of the why question. We should be monitoring the youth around us and not jumping to conclusions for why they're acting a certain way. When a kid acts out or misbehaves at school... The why is probably not because they're a bad kid. The why could be stress or anxiety or depression. So give the kid a break. Again, as Nicole says, be empathetic and be an advocate. The fourth point is we should be talking openly about mental health. It should not be taboo. 
Here's the thing. We all have mental health, right? It's a spectrum. We all have good days and we all have bad days. And as Nicole says, mental health is like nutrition. We should wake up and think about it every day. She encourages us to have an open dialogue about mental health at the dinner table with our kids and their friends, just making it an open conversation, normalizing it so people aren't ashamed of speaking about having an off day, or maybe they're considering getting a therapist. That should be celebrated, not something to be ashamed of. The fifth and last point that I want to highlight is one that's very inspiring. Nicole said that anything we can do is goodness. Doing little things and doing big things will help and make an impact, potentially saving a life. If you're interested in helping and learning more about the Maddie Project and potentially making a donation to help in the quest to raise awareness for youth mental health, I encourage you to check out the links in the show notes where you can do that very easily. Thanks again so very much to Nicole German for sharing your story and your insights with us. Nicole, you truly are a hero. And now, Talk About Talk listeners, I have an ask. If you're enjoying the free content provided by Talk About Talk, including this podcast, I really hope you'll subscribe and tell your friends. I also encourage you to sign up for the free weekly Talk About Talk email blog. Every week, you'll learn about the latest Talk About Talk podcast, some behind-the-scenes insights, inspiring quotes, and other things that I've found that will help us all improve our communication skills. You can sign up easily on the Talk About Talk website or shoot me an email and I'll sign you up myself. All right, that's it. Thanks again for listening and talk soon. Talk soon.